Good morning, students. It's good to be with you again. If you have your Bibles, find with me Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, we'll start in verse 15, and today we'll go all the way through the end of the chapter. Last week, uh, we read about the promise of Abraham and the cross of Christ. If you haven't been following up with us over the last few weeks, we've been going through Paul's letter to the Galatians, and uh, chapter 3 really starts Paul's theological argument for why the gospel of Jesus Christ by faith alone is the true gospel. And while anything else uh, may sound good, it isn't the true gospel. So we were reminded last week that Jesus Christ really is our substitute, that he took our sins on the cross and paid for them, and he gave us his righteousness. This is the heart of the gospel that Paul wants you and me to recognize. Today, we're going to continue his argument by getting a, a crash course on uh, some of the covenants in the Bible. So a covenant is just a, another word for a promise. You know, you think about marriage covenants or um, we have a church covenant. This is an agreement that we come into together. Covenant is a, a strong, strong promise uh, that shouldn't be broken. And the way that God interacts with his people throughout history is through covenants. We see covenants with Adam, we see covenants with Noah, with Abraham, Moses, Israel, David, and, and now as Christians, the new covenant, which we'll get to later on today. Uh, but we're going to see uh, three main covenants this morning. We're going to see the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, or the covenant at Sinai that we learned about in the book of Exodus, and the new covenant in Christ. And we're going to see how the Galatian Christians... Uh, were brought into the family of God by faith, just as every believer before them and after them. We need to know how God interacts with his people. We need to know what the covenants mean so that we can understand where we really are, because fundamentally the problem going on at the church in Galatia is a misunderstanding of the roles of some of these Old Testament covenants. So we're going to start with the covenant that God made with Abraham, and then we'll move to the covenant God made with Moses. And finally, we will look at the wonders of the new covenant in Christ. So let's start reading Galatians 3, starting in verse 15. Paul writes, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Let's pray before we go any further. Oh God in heaven, we're thankful that we get to gather again today to read your word and to study it, to have our eyes opened by the power of your spirit as we behold your truth. And Lord, I pray for our students, I pray for everyone watching this, this message, Lord, that we would have a right understanding of your covenants with your people so that we can truly appreciate the good news of the gospel, we can truly appreciate the, the, the benefits of the new covenant uh, that there is so much continuity because, God, you never change, and yet there is changes that happen through these covenants. And so, God, I pray we would understand them rightly. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 
Well, if you're taking notes this morning, I've already kind of told you our three points, but the first point this morning is the covenant with Abraham. The covenant with Abraham. You know, Paul has already given the churches in Galatia two big examples for why they should not believe these Judaizers or these false teachers among them. We saw them last week. First, he gave the example of their own experience, that they had received the Holy Spirit, something that only happens for believers, right? I mean, the Spirit dwells within his own people. We also saw the second example, which is that the law could not save, that rather it has to be faith uh, for us to be actually saved. We cannot be saved through the law. So we, bought, so we saw both evidence from experience and from theology that the Galatian Christians should not believe these Judaizers. Now Paul moves here in verse 15 to a human example. It's what he says here. In Greek and Hebrew culture, uh, covenants would be just like any other uh, agreement that would be made, maybe uh, an agreement for an inheritance or a, a last will and testament or maybe a covenant between two businesses. And in both Greek culture and Hebrew cultures, these testaments or covenants, it's the same word in the Greek, were unchangeable until they were completed. So you couldn't add to a covenant uh, for your inheritance. So you couldn't to, uh, just, uh, subtract rather from your covenant that you made with a business partner. So Paul is basically saying to these brothers and sisters in Galatia, you know how covenants work. Once they go into place, they cannot be changed. Things that happen after a covenant is ratified don't change the covenant that was already in place. And it's the same with God's covenants with Abraham and Moses. So let's look at the covenant with Abraham. Verse 16 tells us what happened. God promised Abraham a series of blessings that would come to him and to his offspring. But Paul latches onto the fact that the word offspring is singular rather than plural. Now you and I, if we know the story of Abraham, he was promised a son, right? And that son was Isaac. That was a, a miracle child. And through Isaac, we get um, Jacob and the whole tribe of Israel, the 12 tribes. So we might think that Isaac, Abraham's son, is the offspring in question there in the book of Genesis. But Paul is telling us here that it's not just Isaac, it's, some, it's someone, some offspring way in the future that's going to bring about all of these blessings that God has promised. He says that Christ is the offspring of promise. Through Jesus, through Christ, all the blessings that God promised would truly come to pass. Now, in arguing like this, Paul teaches you and me something really, really important about the Bible, its authority, and how it ought to be uh, used in our own lives. Phil Riken says it better than I could. He, he says, how could Paul make such a precise point from the Hebrew text of the Old Testament unless he believed that the Bible is God's word written? Even though he did not use uh, these precise words, Paul obviously believed that the Bible is infallible. It means it does not contain any error. It's inerrant, which means it cannot contain any falsehood from beginning to end. The Bible, students, is the very word of God. It's not just big ideas or a, a collection of themes that we should understand, although there are big ideas and big themes that we should consider important but the very words in the text matter. And that's why Paul can make this argument. He says, look, that word was singular, not plural, and that's why I can make the argument I'm making. 
So why does Paul mention the covenant being unchangeable? Why does he want him, why does he want the churches in Galatia to remember this? Because 430 years after Abraham, the law came through Moses. The introduction of Moses and the law does not supersede or change the promise that God made to Abraham in his covenant. One day, according to this promise, there will be a nation of God's people through Abraham, Abraham's children, his offspring, who will dwell in the land that God gives them. That's kind of a summation of the promises that God gives. Moses and the law doesn't change that promise. Right? There, there still will be a day where all of Abraham's children, all of Abraham's offspring will come to a land with God's blessing and dwell there forever. That there will be a, a nation devoted to the Lord. And that ultimately hasn't happened yet, right? I mean, we think about the story of Israel and they did receive a land and they were plentiful, but they lost it. Uh, the people of Israel did not dwell in their land forever. They were cast away into exile And what we learned last week and what we'll learn again this week is that in order to be a true child of Abraham, you have to have faith, right? A sonship in the family of Abraham is not through uh, ethnicity or heritage, it's through belief in the promise. Moses and the law doesn't change that. So think of verse 15 here in Galatians chapter 3 as talking about the, the permanence or the endurance of the covenant with Abraham. This will last forever. Verse 16 is actually the the party or who's involved in the covenant. The offspring in question actually is Christ himself. And now when we get to verse 17, we have the promise of the covenant. God will be faithful to fulfill this promise. And that's why Paul says there in verse 18, let's look at it again, that if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. We have an inheritance through faith. Now, you don't have to earn inheritance, right? You just have to be born in a family. Like you don't, an inheritance is not like a paycheck. It's not like a wage that you earn. It's something that you receive by virtue of being a part of that family. So our inheritance, the blessing that God gives, always will come through promise. It never comes through the law. It always comes through the promise. Moses and the law do not bring us right standing before God. Instead, it's faith in the promise of Abraham. So that's how God deals with you and me. He always will deal with us, students, if we are his, according to his promise, not according to our works. Listen again to Phil Riken. He writes, as it was for Abraham, so it is for everyone who is in Christ. Salvation in Christ does not rest on a law that we inevitably break. It rests on a promise that God cannot break. So students, if you wrestle with the sins of your own heart, and you know that you're a believer, you know that you love God, you know that you love the gospel, but you, you keep finding yourself in sin and you wonder, uh, what is God thinking of me? How does God view me? Well, if you're in Christ, he does not judge you according to your works. He does not deal with you according to your obedience or disobedience. No, he deals with you according to his promise. And his promise through faith is nothing for you but blessing and life because you're in Christ. So that's the covenant with Abraham, that through this promise, through faith, we now will receive the blessings that God has promised to give. 
But that begs the question, doesn't it? If, if Abraham is pointing forward to the offspring who is Christ, then why did we need the law? Why did we need Moses at all? If the law cannot save us, then why did he give us the law at all? Because that was the Judaizers' problem. They thought the law was going to be the means of their salvation. So why would God introduce something like that that would confuse his people? Well, that brings us to the second point for us this morning, and that's the covenant with Moses. The covenant with Moses. Let's pick up the text in verse 19. Paul writes, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Let's stop there. So why does God give the law? Why do we have the promise according to Abraham and the law according to Moses? Well, we know, hopefully we've seen it already in Paul's arguments, that the law was not given for salvation. The promise was given for salvation. That's how we believe in the promised one to come. So why then do we have the law? Paul says that God gives the law because of transgressions. Because of sins. So when we think about the law of Moses, we think about this covenant that God makes with Moses, historically there have been three related uses for the law. You might hear or read sometime in the future about the first use of the law, the second use of the law, and the third use of the law. Let's let's just work our way backwards very quickly. The, The third use of the law is for Christians. Right? When we want to know uh, what it is that would please the Lord, we look at the law, not so that we might earn our salvation, but so that we might respond in faithfulness. So when Jesus says, love your enemies, or love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, he's quoting the law of Moses. So we as Christians can use the law as a means for godly living, not to earn salvation, but as a life in response to the salvation that we've been given. That's the third use of the law. The second use of the law is more corporate in nature. It's it's how governments and societies and civilizations might organize themselves to restrain law-breaking and promote law-abiding. So you think about in our own country, we have laws against murder, we have laws against stealing, we have laws against slander and lying and bearing false witness, all of these laws are taken from ultimately the law of Moses. And so the second use of the law is the means by which societies or civilizations can take God's law to make them uh, morally structured. Now, it doesn't change our hearts, right? We still have law breakers, but it does create a society in which laws can be kept and promoted. 
Well, that leaves us with the first use of the law, and that's the use of the law that I think Paul is getting at here in verses 19 through 25. The first use of the law is to expose or to reveal our hearts to show how sinful they really are. So when we understand the law, when we really understand what it's calling for, we will immediately recognize our inability to keep it. We will fail at keeping the law. So in other words, the law actually increases our sins because now we know that we're falling short. As we've said before, the law doesn't save. Instead, it reveals our need for a savior. You and I, students, have sinful hearts and those hearts are bent away from righteousness and towards wickedness. So here's what happens. When we hear the law, when we understand the law, when we understand what the rules of living ought to be, the bent of our hearts are going to lead us away from that law. And now that we know the law with clarity, when we read the law of Moses, it actually increases our transgression. It increases our sin because our hearts want to run away from righteousness, not towards it. That's the first use of the law. It exposes us to what we really are. We really are sinful people. Next, in verses 19 and 20, Paul begins to compare again uh, uh, the Abrahamic covenant to the Mosaic covenant. So um, God spoke directly to Abraham. You think about in the book of Genesis, God visits Abraham and speaks to him the promise. But Moses was a mediator between God and Israel, the people who actually received the law. Not only that, but if you find Deuteronomy 33 and Psalm 68 and read those chapters, you'll see that angels were also present during the, the giving of the law. That's what Paul is talking about here in verse 19. It says, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So let's compare the two. In the, Abra in the Abrahamic covenant, we have God speaking directly to Abraham. In the Mosaic covenant, we have God speaking through angels to Moses, to Israel. You see the distance here in the Mosaic covenant compared to the, the closeness of the Abrahamic covenant. The distance between the parties, according to Paul, is showing you and me and the churches in Galatia that these were not the same. These are not the same kind of thing. So is the law bad? Is it, as Paul asks, contrary to the promises of the law, like he says in verse 21? He's been contrasting these two things over and over already in this book for a long time, that the promise is how we receive salvation. The law is how we're actually condemned in our sins. So is the law contrary to the promises of God? You would expect Paul to say, well, of course they are. That's what the Judaizers are using for you to become saved. But what does he say in verse 21? Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. Certainly not. Well, what's going on here? Students, we need to know that the law of Moses and the promise of the gospel that we find first in Abraham are serving two different purposes. They're doing two different things, but they're doing them together. The law cannot give life, but it can reveal our need for the gospel. So Tom Schreiner says it like this. He says, the law promotes the promise 
because it reveals to human beings like you and me the full extent and power of sin. So the law drives us to Christ and the promise by teaching that the only hope of salvation lies not in ourselves or in our keeping of the law, but in Christ crucified. I think Schreiner's exactly right. So it's vital that you and I don't get the law and the gospel confused. One of them points to our need for salvation. The other is the good news of our salvation in Christ. So Paul continues in verses 22 and 23 by saying that the law held us captive until faith came. Look at verse 22. He says, The scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. What does this mean? Well, under the law, under the the law of Moses, everything was cursed. Remember we talked about this last week. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have broken his law. So we all stand condemned by the law. We are imprisoned by our own faithlessness, our own disobedience to the law of God. The law revealed us to be wicked and sinful and unworthy. The people of Israel then should have been the most humble people on the planet because they had the law. So they should have known how lowly they ought to be, like everyone else ought to have been. But instead, the Judaizers twisted the purpose of the law to make them come out as superior to the Gentiles, as actually better than the Gentiles. They're saying, we have the law, so we're more righteous than you. But that's not the role of the law, is it? Remember, the role of the law is actually to increase our sin to expose our need for a savior. The Judaizers had the purpose of the law completely reversed. And that's why Paul is so adamant in Galatians that we would get this right, that you and I would not lean into the law for our righteousness, that we wouldn't lean into works for our salvation. So under the first use of the law, this exposing of our sin, you and I are imprisoned. That's the language Paul uses. Not because the law is bad. No, the law is good. The law comes from God. The the law is a revelation of how we ought to be. No, it's not because the law is bad. It's because we're bad. Right? So think about in in a just society with good laws. Criminals in prison cannot blame the police or the judge for their incarceration. They can't blame the law for them being in prison if the laws are just. Their sin, their disobedience, their law-breaking is what brought them behind bars. And it's the same with us and the law of Moses. The problem's not with the law. The law is just. The law is good. The law is from God. You read in uh, Psalm 119 over and over, David talks about how he loves the law. He delights in the law. The law is good for his soul. But you and I stand condemned under that law. And until faith comes, we are all imprisoned because of our sin. That leads us to verses 24 and 25 where he changes the image a little bit. He starts to use the language of a, of a guardian. Look at verse 25, or verse 24 rather. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now what's that word guardian mean? Well, the the word there in the New Testament is actually the word that would be um, very 
woodenly translated as a pedagogue. And you may not know that word, and that's, that's fine, but a pedagogue is a kind of teacher. It's a kind of uh, a superior. In those days, in, in Paul's life in the first century, uh, children had pedagogues who were more like chaperones and, and moral tutors who would be with them all the time until they became adults. So these pedagogues or these guardians would help shape these children into mature men and women. And although sometimes they had to be harsh, you look at uh, imagery from the first century uh, pictures of uh, families, you would see pedagogues often with a cane in their hand that they would use for discipline. Although they had to be harsh sometimes, good relationships were actually formed between the children and the pedagogues, between the children and their guardians. And that's the word that Paul is using here. In other words, Paul says that the covenant with Moses, the law, is like a moral tutor or a chaperone. It's keeping watch over us. It's, it's showing us the right way, even though we're disobeying as we go. So what this means for us is that as Christians in a world full of sinful and broken people, you and I cannot afford not to use the law. We must be able to reveal to those around us their desperate need for a Savior, their desperate need for the gospel. We must recognize how our own hearts are often bent away from righteousness and towards sin. That's the role of the law, that it was this guardian, this chaperone that was watching over history, watching over God's people until the true offspring of Abraham could come. But, Paul says, verse 25, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. When children grow up, the pedagogue's job is finished. When they become adults, that chaperone, that tutor, that teacher no longer has a job. We who are in Christ are no longer imprisoned by the law. Christ uh, leads us into a new covenant with him, And that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. So let's read, starting in verse 26, about the new covenant in Christ. If you're taking notes, that's our third point, the new covenant in Christ. Let's start in verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is the new covenant in Christ. Now that we have faith in Jesus, we have all the benefits that the new covenant has promised to us. Now remember, Jesus is the promised offspring of God's covenant with Abraham. So we can think of the Abrahamic covenant as a kind of preview for the new covenant. It's pointing forward to what we now receive through faith in Jesus. We now get wrapped up in all of God's promises to Abraham because we are now united by faith in Jesus. Now let's look at some of the wonderful things that are ours now because of the new covenant. If you're a Christian, all of this is for you. You get to receive these benefits. 
First, in verse 26, we see that we have been adopted by God the Father. We've been adopted. Verse 26 says that we are all sons of God. We have moved from prisoner under sin to son of God. That's a huge leap. Now, as sons of God, and you girls who are watching this, we understand in, in this context, you want to be considered a son because a son is the one who will receive the, the bounty of the father's inheritance. And so for Paul to say that all of us, Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, we are now considered sons of God is not a, a, a detraction away from you being female. No, it's an elevation to say you are now an heir. You now get to receive the blessing. So as sons of God, we now have access to all the privileges of, privileges of being a part of God's family. Students, we now have a father who is perfect in every way, who is always pursuing our highest good. He loves us, protects us, encourages us, even disciplines us so that we might be the beneficiaries of his in eternal inheritance. We all have someone now who delights in showing his affection towards us all the time. He always gives good gifts, always uh, wants to give us his attention. He never runs out of blessings. God, the creator of all things, is now your father and my father. So that's the first thing we receive in this new covenant. Verse 26 tells us we are now sons of God. We've been adopted into his family. Second, we see in verse 27, we have union with Christ. Now, we've already discussed the union with Christ a bit a couple of weeks ago, uh, but Paul thinks it's worth repeating here in verse 27. And he uses the language of, of two things, baptism and putting on Christ to discuss or describe the idea of union with Christ. So remember, we, we take Christ's righteousness in exchange for our sins. And we see that a little bit in the idea of baptism. Now, primarily, Paul's getting at the idea that uh, we've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is what John says about Jesus during his earthly ministry. He says, I, I baptize with water for repentance, but he will come baptizing with the Holy Spirit and fire. So there's a kind of baptism, a kind of spirit-wrought baptism that takes place for you and me when we come to Christ by faith. It's here where uh, we are washed by the blood of Christ through our faith. We're made clean. But that spiritual reality is signified in the act of water baptism. So you and I, when we come to faith in Christ, I hope this has been true of all of you, that one of the first things we ought to do is to get baptized. We want to make a public profession and, and show through this symbol of going into the depths of the water and coming out of the water uh, the, the spiritual reality that's taken place by the Spirit through faith in Jesus. It's a picture of what's taken place. We die to our sin. We died with Christ and were buried with him. And now we were raised to life with him. This is ours by faith in the new covenant. Now there is no more condemnation because we are united with Christ himself. God now sees us as righteous because we have put on Christ. We have put on his righteousness. So benefits of the new covenant, we have adoption. We've been brought into his family. 
we have union with Christ. We now have all of his blessings and we put on his righteousness. And third, Paul tells us that the new covenant doesn't just afford you adoption. doesn't just afford you union with Christ and all of his righteousness. But now in verse 28, we see that we have been given a family with bonds tighter than anything the world can offer. What unites this communion of saints, which is ours in the new covenant, is not our ethnicity, it's not our socioeconomic status, it's not even our gender. No, Jesus is our bond. We are all members of his body. We've been given the church. So notice what this means here in verse 28 and what it doesn't mean. First, it means that before God, all humanity stands equal. There is no inherent superiority to being white or black or Hispanic or Asian or employed or an employer or rich or poor or a man or a woman. These things do not make you more holy. They don't make you more like God. So the part of our prejudiced hearts that rank people by virtue of their skin color or their status or their gender, that part of our hearts needs to be put to death. There is no place for that in God's kingdom. And we think about our own time and place, and we think about the things going on in our world even today, and we consider that many people have not made this connection, that to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, is to recognize everyone around me as someone who's made in God's image, as someone who is deeply valuable, deeply worthy of respect, deeply worthy of honor. Our churches should be a reflection of our community. As we look forward to that day where all of the tribes and nations and languages are worshiping together around the throne of God, we should, we should strive for that kind of, of beautiful diversity in our own context. Now, now here's what this, this doesn't mean that we have to have 25% this race and 25% this race and 25% this race and 25% something else. No, it, it just means that we ought to be a reflection of our community. So we have to ask the question, why is it that most of the people around here look like me and probably live in a similar neighborhood to me? And while there are plenty of factors that go into what kind of diversity exists in a church, even ours, we still need to ask the question. So verse 28 is a resounding proclamation for the equality and the value of all people. We as gospel people know that all of us fall short of God's glory, all of us have sinned, and all can be saved by grace through faith, and all will stand before God one day. That's what this verse means. But here's what this verse doesn't mean. Verse 28 doesn't mean that our ethnicity, our socioeconomic status, and our gender don't matter at all. Throughout Paul's letters, we see distinctions between these kinds of things made. So, so we need to get this. The family of God is not ideally this raceless, classless, genderless body that melds itself into itself with no diversity at all. We're not trying to create robots who look and act exactly the same. No, the, the body of Christ is beautifully diverse. 
It's a place where the sinful realities of this world against people of color or against the poor or against women or against any other kind of group will fall by the wayside and instead they're replaced with the beautiful design of God that we can now celebrate these things. So, so here's just an example. It means that when I speak to a black brother in Christ, I don't act like he isn't black. Like, I don't act like he isn't African American. I don't act like he doesn't have darker skin than me. That means something. It means something that we were created differently. It's given him a perspective and a set of experiences that I can learn from, and vice versa. And I can even celebrate that God in his wisdom has made us diverse and different. And I can celebrate this gift of darker skin that he's given to my brother. But his skin color isn't the foundation of my love for him. I can celebrate it. I recognize it. But Jesus Christ and our faith in him is the bond that clings us together. And here's why that's important. Eventually, diversity may lead to disagreement. And me and my African-American brother might go into an argument about a certain thing and we might disagree We might come to different conclusions about something, whether it's related to race or anything else. But our love for one another can be sustained. Our joy in one another can be preserved. Why? Because Christ is unshakable. And that's a bond that will not break. Students, this is the blessing of the communion of saints. It's a blessing of the family of God that surrounds us. It's messy, it's difficult, sometimes it's, it's painful, but it's full of joy. And it's full of opportunities to get wrapped up in the kindness of God. And all this is yours by faith and being part of the new covenant. Well, Paul puts a bow on the new covenant here in verse 29, where we'll conclude today. He says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. If you are Christ's, then you are the offspring promised to Abraham. You get to receive all the benefits of his promises. You are now an heir to an eternal inheritance. Students, don't miss this. The new covenant in Christ is the offer of freedom from sin and life in God. You receive a new family In a new name, your life is no longer your own. And it's been God's plan all along. Promised in Abraham, brought to fruition through Christ, and one day will be fulfilled when he returns. The promise to Abraham is the promise of life in Jesus. Moses and the law expose our need for Jesus, but his grace gives us the gift of faith. We have nothing to boast in except for the love and grace of God. Let's pray and respond to him now. Oh Lord Jesus, who could come up with a story like this? That hundreds and hundreds of years ago, you made a promise to a man whom you chose And that promise would be preserved through the law that you give 430 years later on throughout the generations so that 
a little baby boy would be born in Bethlehem who was God in the flesh. And that God-man would live a perfect life and die on the cross for sinners and rise from the dead and ascend to heaven to your right hand. And through faith, we can be united to him, adopted into your family, considered part of the offspring of Abraham, the recipients of all of your promises and blessings. God, we thank you. We praise you for your power and your majesty and your glory. And we we thank you, God, for the, the beautiful diversity that you've given us, Jew and Gentile, slave, free, male, female, all of us can come together as sons and daughters of God. We can be a family united by faith and we can show the world a better way to live, a better way to lay down our lives for the sake of those we love. So Lord, I pray as we praise you and worship you for your power and your goodness and your your glory and your righteousness towards us, your kindness towards us, would you help us? Help us to live in light of your promise. Help us not to live and find our identity in our works. I pray, Lord, that by faith you would spur us on to good works, but that you would constantly remind us by your Spirit that you deal with us according to your promise, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that that would be the the response of grateful hearts to all who are hearing this. And I pray for those who cannot say that with confidence, that they know you as Savior and Lord, that today would be the day that they would turn from their sin, that they would see through the law their desperate need of a Savior, that they would cling by faith to the promise given to Abraham and fulfilled in Jesus. God, I pray that you would bring salvation to some. Help us to live our lives in faithfulness to you, to your word, for your glory, as we await that eternal inheritance that will come when you return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.